0: You grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. We continue in our journey through Holy Week with Jesus uh, today, according to this uh, book that we're also using for our Wednesday Bible studies Fight Like Jesus. How Jesus waged peace each and every day of Holy Week. Last week we looked at Palm Sunday as Jesus entered Jerusalem and how that was prophesied as Him bringing peace to Jerusalem. Uh, and we looked at uh, Jesus as being the Prince of Peace and the Peacemaker. Today we're going to look at what happened the next day on Monday. And as we've heard in the Gospel reading, it sounds like Jesus just has a bit of a temper tantrum, doesn't it? He goes into the temple and he runs amok. Sounds like he's just flown off the handle, a bit of a gut reaction. It, interestingly, this incident has been captured by a number of artists over the uh, over the centuries. And in the 16th century, this one's a little bit dark. In the 16th century, Jacopo Bassano painted this. We've got Jesus here with his, uh, his whip of cords and he's driving everything out and he seems to be closer to people than anything else in that particular painting. Then El Greco painted this one also in the 16th century. Again, Jesus in the centre here with his whip of cords. Can't see any animals there at all, can we? He seems to be driving the people out and, and whipping at the people. And then uh, even uh, Rembrandt had a go at it. And uh, he too has Jesus up here with a particularly indignant look on his face and complete terror in the faces of those that he seems to be whipping at. Now, there seems to be a bit of a theme there, doesn't there? These painters all appear to have picked up the same kind of interpretation that this was a really violent and abusive act by Jesus to drive the people out of the temple. But I'm not quite sure that's exactly what happened. So we're going to dig into a little bit deeper just to see Particularly what the scripture says, that's always a good place to start, isn't it? See what the word of God actually tells us and come to understand what it was that Jesus was actually doing and why he was doing it. We might think, as I said, there was a gut reaction, but in Mark's gospel, he has Jesus riding into Jerusalem and then the first thing that happens after that, that same day, Mark says that Jesus went into the temple and he looked around at everything, but since it was already late in the day, he went back to Bethany with the 12 disciples. So he didn't actually just walk into the temple and fly off the handle at what he saw. He thought about it. He went into the temple, he had a look around, took it all in, but then went back to Bethany with the the fellas to sleep on it. No doubt Jesus would have prayed about it and he formulated a plan. So what happened next when he he returned to the temple was absolutely planned. It was considered, it was deliberate. What he did was intentional. It wasn't just a gut reaction. Which is probably a good thing, because when I follow my gut reactions, it doesn't always end well. So I'm pleased that uh, Jesus thought about it, prayed about it, and planned what he was going to do next. We see then, back in the reading we heard today from John, when it was almost time for the Passover, Jesus went up to the Jerusalem. So this is the next day, this is on Monday. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others were sitting at the tables exchanging money. It was a market, it was a free-for-all. And it wasn't exactly above board. So, the uh, the traders in the temple had absolutely learnt to take advantage of the travellers and the underprivileged. The travellers were coming from all over the country, especially at this time for the Passover. So it was the big time for their uh, for their travel, their journey to Jerusalem. So there were lots and lots of strangers, lots of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. So they were coming in with their own local currency but when they got to the temple they'd find that the trading inside the temple to buy uh, sacrifices could only be transacted with uh, temple shekels. They were a coin that did not have a human image on it so all of the Roman currency around the countryside had a picture of a Caesar or something on there. But the temple authorities decided they wouldn't accept those inside the temple. It had to be temple shekels. So first the the travellers had to exchange their money from whatever money they'd brought with them to temple shekels. Now the exchange rate wasn't great for a start because the guys in the temple receiving the money wanted to make money out of it. Plus they charged a commission on top. So those travellers came in and got ripped off blind. But they had no choice. They wanted to worship God. They wanted to buy a sacrifice. So that was what they had to go through. The Mishnah actually records that the temple traders collected so much commission from these foreign exchanges, these uh, currency exchanges, it was enough to plate the Holy of Holies with gold. So they made a pretty penny out of it, don't you worry about that. There are also other historians that recorded that Ananias in particular, we've heard about Ananias and Caiaphas, the, the priests in the temple... They were living in really nice houses. Um, They were nicknamed uh, the accumulators of wealth because they were also pocketing a lot of this um, commission they were making out of these uh, currency exchanges. So not exactly a holy practice, that's for sure. Similarly, the actual sacrifices, the doves and the sheep and the cattle that were for sale were at exorbitant prices. Um, So other historians have also recorded how there was quite a drive against that so that the prices could be driven down so the average people who wanted to come in could actually afford uh, to buy a sacrifice so this is all going on in the temple this is a bit of a recreation a bit of a model of the temple we have here is the, the holy of holies so the first chamber in there was the holy place and then you went through the temp, you went through the curtain sorry into the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant where the 10 commandments were actually stored inside the holy of holies this is that place where the the priest the high priest only went in once a year um, to to clean the ark of the covenant uh, and to present himself before god so he had to go through a a massive uh, ritual of purification before that and even then he went in with a rope around his leg because he might not come out alive if he went into the presence of god and he hadn't gone through his purification properly then there was there were priests that died and had to be dragged out by the rope around their leg I'm glad we don't do that anymore. <laughs> I wouldn't stand a chance. So, uh, yes, yeah, so we had the um, uh, the Holy of Holies here. Outside of that was the uh, the area for the priests. Outside of that was the area for the Jewish men. And then outside of that was the area for the Jewish women. And that was all inside the confines. There were these various courts. Court of the uh, priests, court of the Jews, court of the women inside that... Uh, that confine in the middle and then this out here was the court of the gentiles so all this area out here was where all the rest of the people could come the jews as we know were so precious about their purification uh, their ritual cleanliness that they didn't want to mix with the average people they didn't want to mix with anyone who was sick or lame or you know the lepers got kicked out of town completely so they created this court of the gentiles so that the Jew- jewish people could be inside um, these higher walls and at the gateways into those places, there were signs that literally said, and Paul refers to it uh, in his writings, don't go past here if you're not a Jew because you'll, you'll get killed. We'll, we'll do you in. Um, so they couldn't enter into the confines of the central part of the temple for fear of death. But they could still gather out here in this court of the Gentiles and they could worship God out there. The problem was that these traders had filled the place up with so many cattle and sheep and and uh, doves and things that there was hardly any room the average person to even get in there so not only could they uh, not physically get in but even if they did then they were going to get ripped off anyway so there was really no incentive for them to try to get into this place to worship God these are some of the things that were really upsetting Jesus at the time Mark tells us that uh, Jesus entered the courts he began driving out everyone who was buying and selling there he overturned the tables and as he taught them so he didn't just run amok and yell and scream at them but he was actually trying to teach them something important mark tells us as he taught them he said is it not written my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations but you've made it a den of robbers this starts to give us a bit of an insight into what jesus was thinking and feeling and he was trying to teach them this is not how things are supposed to be run here you've completely lost the plot we read in isaiah that uh isaiah writes let no foreigner who's bound to the lord say the lord will exclude me Um, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, I'll give them a space inside my temple. I'll give them a memorial, an everlasting name. So Isaiah is already prophesying that this temple is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. Isaiah goes on to say that any foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, I'll bring them to my holy mountain, the the mountain Zion, where this temple was, and I'll give them joy in my house. Uh, Their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the scripture that Jesus is actually referring to. This place is meant to be a place for everybody, not just the Jews who know God, but those who are wanting to come to know God. So then we get to this uh, passage in John where he starts to take action. He makes a whip, uh, repeats a little bit of what Matthew and Mark have written, but it's slightly different, scatters the coins and tells those who are selling doves, get out of here. But let's have a look at uh, in a little bit more depth of what actually happened here. Jesus makes a whip out of cords now he didn't bring anything into the temple with him so perhaps the night before when he had a look around he got a bit of an idea of what was there and what was available so when he gets in there he makes a whip a makeshift whip Um, other translations say he made something like a whip but what sort of stuff did he have available to make a whip out of we don't know if it was actually the cords that perhaps tied the animals up or there's also a translation that says it was the reeds that uh, the animal owners used as beds for their animals. Either way, it wasn't really a highly refined instrument, was it? It was something that Jesus managed to jerry-rig together so that he could uh, move the animals out of the way. The next thing we look at then is that he drove all from the temple courts. And when we first hear that, we probably think he says he drove everyone from the court, but it doesn't actually say that. It says he drove all from the courts, both the sheep and the cattle. Jesus was only interested in getting rid of the livestock out of the temple for a start. Now, because he would made this makeshift whip out of either the cords that the animals were tied up with or the reeds that they used to sleep on, they were quite, the animals were quite familiar with an instrument like this to move them on. So when he started waving that around, they probably started moving quite quickly. It was something they knew they had to do. So they were off, the, the animals, the sheep, the cattle... We're heading out the doors and the owners were thinking, there goes my livelihood. So I don't think Jesus really needed to whip them and get them out of the way because they were chasing their their stock out the door anyway. Um, So they were moving anyway. So there's nothing at all to suggest that Jesus whipped people, not even suggesting that he even whipped the animals themselves, but he certainly drove the animals out, the people followed. Then he turned over the tables of the money changers and scattered their coins. Now, can you imagine if you're in a crowded court and you've just paid an exorbitant amount of money for something, and all of a sudden there's loose change on the ground? It's going to be on for young and old, isn't it? So there's coins everywhere. People are scratching for coins. The people who think they own them, the, uh, the money changes, are probably diving into the money to try to grab some for themselves. But I'm sure there were plenty of down and lowly people who were just pocketing a few quiet coins as well while they could. Either way, the livestock were out of the way, place had opened up, it was a bit of bedlam for a while, but no doubt once the money changers grabbed as much of their money as they could, they hightailed it out of there as well. Jesus didn't really need to push them out any further. So all of a sudden, that big area of those, the court of the Gentiles had become quite vacant. That area was supposed to be, as I said, for the normal people, the travellers, the foreigners, the lame, the sick, the children, who couldn't normally get in there to get close to worship God. This is what jesus was most upset about that this place was supposed to be a prayer place for all nations but they couldn't physically get in so he opened up some room is this something we would have expected jesus to do well no not really so far as we can tell uh it's it's certainly the only thing in all of scripture where jesus really even acts aggressively i mean he has a few nasty words he has a few sharp words for the pharisees and the sadducees from time to time but in general He's a pretty passive sort of bloke, isn't he? He generally does things through some strong words, some firm words, but he's never physically aggressive like this before. So if he were doing what the what the paintings depicted and actually whipping people, that would be quite hypocritical and totally out of character for him. Matthew tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus himself says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. A little bit later in that same sermon, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but I tell you don't resist an evil person and if anyone slaps you on the right cheek then turn to them the other cheek also and then a few verses after that he says you've heard that it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you It would be completely hypocritical of Jesus to be saying this in in one sermon um, and then whipping people in the other you know in the other instance so what is it then that he was trying to achieve? What was driving him? And uh, what was it that he actually achieved? Uh, Isaiah also said, um, in that passage where Isaiah was prophesying Jesus' suffering and his death, he said he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So Isaiah even prophesied when he told us about how Jesus would suffer for us and die for us, that he would die Um, as an innocent person, one that had not seen and one that had not been violent at all. It was after seeing this commotion that the disciples then remembered that it was written in the scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. What would we say, how would we describe zeal? Zeal is not really a word that we use very often these days, so what's another word that you would use for zeal? Jealousy, good one. Passion, yep. Any others? It's got a, sorry? enthusiasm absolutely absolutely so it's got a fair range everything from enthusiasm which is sort of perhaps the uh, uh, you know the lower end of zeal right up to infatuation maybe even obsession um, at the high end but I'd say the word that we would use most often to explain zeal or describe zeal zeal would be passion that real heartfelt driving force that I'm sure we all have in our heart for something we all have a passion for something somewhere that was what was driving Jesus. It was actually love for his father and love for his father's house and love for the fact that his father's house was meant to be open for everybody to make available to, the, to, to get access to the father that was driving him. But that same zeal was actually his undoing, wasn't it? Because out of this uh, event, we know that the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law then concluded, we've got to get rid of this guy, that's enough, you know, this is, that's the end of it. So Jesus knew that in his outpouring of love, in this very aggressive and assertive outpouring of cleansing the temple so that those who really needed to get into the temple could get there, he knew that that was going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back with the Jewish authorities. He knows that he will be consumed. You know, consumed is to be completely eaten up, completely devoured. He knew that he would be given over to death as a result of this event, that this was going to supercharge his road, to the cross but that was out of his love for you and for me he knew that was his job he knew that his whole purpose on on earth was to die for us and that was the only way that he could save each and every one of us and and buy back our lives for God's use and for God's will so his love his zeal for God's house and for us was what ultimately consumed him we find though then that as soon as he'd done that Matthew tells us that once Jesus had cleansed the temple Then the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. So all of a sudden, these people could finally get back into the court of the Gentiles. Jesus healed them and they received the peace that God wanted to give them. So this is how Jesus actually brings peace out of this very aggressive, very uh, hectic act. The blind and the lame are able to get back into those temple courts and he heals them. And as I said before, the peace that Jesus has brought was not between human beings and human beings necessarily but between human beings and God. So the, the blind and the lame were able to get into the temple courts and Jesus could heal them and give them the peace between them and with God. We also find that there were children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. The children were able to get back into the courts as well, where previously there just wasn't room for them to get in there with all of that cattle and livestock in there. So they were able to receive the peace of God as well. But as Matthew says, um, the, uh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw what was going on and they were very indignant. Um, they weren't happy with Jesus at all and if we read further we find this is where they start planning uh, to actually get rid of him. In, uh, in the book that is the basis for our Bible studies we have this quote For Jesus, pacifism could never be equated with pacifism. Refusing to act violently was never a refusal to act. When all was not right, Jesus never sat idly by doing nothing. Love compelled him to act. Love moved him to resist evil with every fibre of his being. And Jesus intends for this same active love to be found in all who embrace his approach to peacemaking. Jesus was willing to give it all, to be consumed in order to have this house of God restored to what it was supposed to be. It's proof again, a reminder again, that when things get to that point where they're just intolerable, God will act. Uh, I spoke to the children last week about the flood, that God watched, God allowed human beings to to live on the earth and, and run the earth the way they wanted to, but it was getting more and more depraved as time went by. And eventually God said, that's it, I've got to step in, I've got to act. Flooded the entire earth, cleansed the entire planet with a massive flood and saved just a few that the human race and the animals might continue. Here Jesus looks in the temple and he says, this has got to stop. This is not good enough. And he steps in and he cleanses the temple to reset the practices there. Suffice to say, that's not the end of it, is it? Jesus is coming back one day (laughs) for that final cleansing, for that final judgment, where he will decide who lives in eternity with him and who doesn't. So that's something else for us to, to be prepared for. That's something else for us to prepare our hearts for um, as we live our lives here on earth uh, we know that the jews then asked jesus for a sign to prove the authority he said destroy this temple or raise it again in three days we know that's him predicting his his own death uh, they scoff at him you know it's taken 46 years to build it how can you possibly raise it in three days but jesus says uh, he doesn't answer but the disciples know that he's talking about his body uh, a bit disappointingly they didn't actually click until after he'd raised again from the dead so for three days is pondering, what was he talking about? That you know, destroyed the temple and I'll raise it in three days. Finally, after Jesus has risen from the dead, the disciples go, ah, oh, that's what it was. Um, fortunately, we've got the benefit of hindsight. So we know what he was talking about. But all along, you know, this was Jesus' plan. Uh, but then there's these few verses just at the tail end of that that give us a little bit more to think about that are not usually in our lectionary. While Jesus was still in Jerusalem at the Passover, many people saw the signs he was performing and they believed in his name. But he would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He didn't need any testimony about mankind because he knew what was in each person. Uh, The Living Translation says, whoops, he knew what was in each person's heart. Jesus looks inside each of our hearts as well. And as I said to the children, our hearts get a bit crowded and a bit messy sometimes as well so we need to regularly cleanse our hearts we can do that uh, through confession absolution here Uh, we can do it through holy communion that's one of the precious gifts that jesus has given us to uh, to wash us clean i remember uh, at Sem, one of the lecturers telling me that every time he receives holy communion he feels like the blood of christ is sprinkling on his heart and he feels his heart being washed clean through uh, swallowing that wine in holy communion i thought that was quite a beautiful image um, of how this particular person interprets Holy Communion. So Jesus was very wary. He wouldn't entrust himself to those who just believe because they saw good things. He knows he looks deeper than that and he wants more than that in our hearts. He wants us to have that zeal. He wants us to have that passion for his father, for his father's house, and for sharing that gospel with other people so that others can come to know him as well. The, uh, the writer of this book, uh, Jason Porterfield, also says this, In his summary of this chapter, he says, Many claim their zeal is righteous, but don't be fooled. On Monday of Holy Week, Jesus revealed what true zeal for God looks like. Truly righteous zeal is constructive, not destructive. It lifts others up instead of tearing them down. Instead of injuring, it heals. Instead of destroying, it restores. And above all, truly righteous zeal is motivated by self-giving love, not other-consuming hatred. Jesus had nothing to benefit out of cleansing the temple. He wasn't uh, angry about something that he was missing out on. He wasn't trying to build himself up. He wasn't trying to make a scene for his own notoriety or his own fame or his own glory. He was, glor- he was zealous for God's house and for people to be able to have access to God. I wonder what that means for us. I wonder what barriers there are in our hearts that stop us truly worshipping God. I wonder what barriers there are here in our congregation Um, that prevent people from coming in here that need to come in that want to come in and be close to God I think it's uh, good for us to think about the things that we can do to make it as easy as possible and as attractive as possible to invite people um, either here or uh, into our homes or wherever it is that they too might come to feel and know the love of God Um, so they too might come to have a relationship a personal relationship with God and they too might come to experience and know for themselves that zeal that Jesus has for us uh, and for uh, his kingdom. I'll let you ponder about that over the next few days. Um, I forgot to say it in the first service, but there are several uh, Bible study books uh, around out in the foyer as well. So if you weren't able to get here last Wednesday, uh, then there are some Bible study books you can grab uh, to be able to pick up on some of these things, look into some of these passages for yourself. Uh, and they're the books that we'll use for the ongoing Wednesdays as well. Uh, So I encourage you to take one of those, and if we run out, then let me or Sharon know, and we'll print some more for you, um, so that you can uh, stay in step with this sermon series as we work our way through Holy Week with Jesus. As you do that, may the peace of God, which is beyond our human understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.